Morning, family. All right. Man, I'm excited to jump into the Bible. If you have your phones, your Bibles, whatever resource you want to use, go ahead and turn to Luke 2. That's where we're going to start off this morning. We're going to go through a bunch of different scriptures just to give you a heads up. So you might need to buckle up and hang on tight. Um, but as we jump into this series, um, I feel like I need to pause and preface something as you're, as you're turning to Luke 2. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, if you're not aware of this, but I want to make you aware of it. God is doing something very significant in our community, especially in the last six months. Like unprecedented, like moves of the Holy Spirit, healings, restorations, deliverances, marriages being restored. Like God is doing stuff in this community. And, and he always is doing something. And this whole journey of church planning, it's been one massive, amazing adventure with God. But I'm telling you, like at an increased level where you're going, I don't even know how to process and keep up with the amount of testimonies I'm hearing. Like it's so frequent that I'm just like waiting for the next text of some crazy story how God delivered somebody of something. Like it's crazy how quickly God is meeting people. And we just went through a series about revival. And what I, I, we've tried to communicate this and so I'm doing my best effort to do it again. But I just want to put, you, put it before you that we don't feel like, oh, that was a nice moment when God did some cool stuff. Okay, on to Christmas season. Let's jump into the Christmas series and go through the traditional things that we do. There's this sense of like, even like fear and trembling before the Lord of like, God, I don't want to take a step forward if you're not taking a step forward. Like God is doing something and we need to stay in step with what the Lord is doing. And we feel like the Lord is just teeing us up for this series because I actually think that this topic that we're going to talk about for the next three weeks is an actual fruit of revival. So in this series, that we, in this season that we've been going through, part of some of the things that have been happening, just to give you examples, is there's been an outpouring of repentance there's been an outpouring of like people getting free from stuff. There's been people uh, who've uh, begun to just kind of clean house and say, God, I want to be consecrated. That's a biblical word of saying, I want to be set apart. I want to be like Jesus. And I don't want to love the things of this world. I want to I love the things of the kingdom of God. And whatever he's up to is what I want to be about. That's what God's been doing. And there is a place of grieving sin and, and, and mourning compromise. That is so good. But biblically, mourning turns to laughter. Grieving ultimately, rightfully before the presence of God, turns into joy. And so there needs to be a transition in this revival atmosphere of God, reviving our community and moving powerfully, that we, yes, continue to resist and reject sinful behavior, but we begin to step into the fullness of joy that God's been promising. That is a full, revived person. Does that make sense? And so in this season and in this, in this move of God, we're now stepping into a series called Good News great joy, and it comes out of Luke 2. So if you want to begin to read with me, we'll start in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region there were shepherds out in their fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. 
And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. So confession time. I don't know about you, but I read this part of Luke about once a year, and it's usually at Christmas time. Anybody else? Is this like when you read this passage? You hear the story? I'm praying and asking that God would redeem it because it's a whole lot more than just a a one-time-a-year passage. There is something very significant that's happening right here that this is testifying of that I'm hoping and praying, God, right now, sober us to the, the kingdom reality that you're trying to show us right now from this passage. And what it's saying is that the creator of the universe who spoke all things into consistence, that, that like the earth is his footstool, that kind of God decides to manifest himself into incarnation, becomes a human being and is born as a baby so that he might redeem you and me. That is what is happening. That is what this is saying. And what's mind-blowing is that not only is it just good news that he's coming to redeem us, but it's with great joy. These things aren't always attached to this, sadly. We'll have joy in the moment of salvation, but how many believers continue to operate with great joy? There's something that God's wanting to connect that part of the salvation experience of God redeeming humanity is that Christians should be the happiest people on the planet. Right? Should we not be? Like, we've been saved from something we couldn't save ourselves from. We've been delivered from something we couldn't get out of. Our sin was too strong and our strength was too weak. But then God. God and his great mercy, God and his great love, God and his great joy came to earth as a baby that he might redeem us. How do we not get excited about this? And how does this just say a Christmas season discussion? This is the gospel. This is what gets us out of bed that gives us hope for every day if we realize what we're reading and what is truth. And so God is wanting to awaken us and stir us. And one, one of the books called Abundant Living by Stanley Jones, he wrote this. I love this. He, he observed reading this passage. He said, the early Christians did not say in dismay, look what the world has come to. But in delight said, look what has come into the world. So there is something that is paradigm shifting when Jesus shows up. Where how we look and perceive our everyday life, it is, there's something that God wants to change in the way that we look and think and understand the world around us because Jesus is here. No longer, oh, the world and what has it come to? It's, oh, but Jesus came. Look what has come. There's something of hope and of joy that gets ushered in when we look through the lens of the gospel. In John 1, 18 it tells us that it says this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest friendship or relationship with the father has made him known. So up until Jesus showing up, no one has seen God. And all of a sudden now with their very eyes, they're able to behold him. This is like, this is radical. And not only are they beholding him in like justice, which I don't know if you know, but like they were expecting like a general of an army, they were expecting a full-grown man. I mean, not like a, an infant, like needing and being helpless and needing to be taken care of. Like everything about how Jesus shows up is radically different. But he shows up just the same and he, they are able to actually behold and see with their very eyes the Lord and joy is the immediate fruit of it. Like we see this even played out. Like it says that the, the shepherds, The quote is, they were overcome with joy when they saw the star in the sky that led them to the baby in the manger, 
right? Full, overcome with joy. That was their response already. Just Jesus showing up, joy starts to happen, even as a baby. We see that, you know, Mary, Elizabeth, the shepherds, the angels, Simeon and Anna also overcome with joy and happiness that the Messiah had come. We see that John the Baptist, as a baby in his mom's womb, leaps for joy just for being in proximity to Jesus' Savior in Mary's womb, not even born yet. What I'm trying to tell you is there's something about the presence of God that permeates joy. But how often do we think about that when we're approaching the presence of God? In your mind, when you think about, okay, I'm going to go now engage with the living God, is the first thought on your mind, I think I might laugh. It might be a good time. Like he might tell me a joke. Right? Like, what's, what's going on in your mind when you say, I'm going to approach the Lord? Or is it like fear? Now, there's, there's righteous fear. Don't get me wrong. He is just. He is mighty. He is to be feared. The, the beginning of wisdom is fear of the Lord. There's a place for that. But there's healthy fear and there's unhealthy fear. John Piper says it this way. Righteous fear is fear of what we would do without him. That's righteous fear. What would I do if I didn't have the Lord? Right? And so as we approach the Lord, what, what's happening? And I'm not trying to be irreverent. And so I'm not trying to be irreverent when I say that we should see Jesus rightly, which is this. He's in a good mood. Did you know that about God? He's in a good mood. He's not up in heaven wringing his hands, hoping this thing works out okay. Right? He is, he is conquering the earth. And his ways and his will will come to pass. And he is victorious. And it says that he has good in mind for you. Are you aware of this as you approach the very presence of God? Because in the presence of God is fullness of joy. We, this is crazy. This is who he is. Even the very nature, he is more joyful. If I did a survey and I said, okay, brother, church people are not church people, whatever. You said, who's the happiest person to ever live, right? Like, I'd wonder what your answer, what people's answer would be, but I'm pretty sure Jesus wouldn't be the first person that most people would write down, Right? Like, you don't, you think of a stoic, especially all the movies and everything. I feel like The Chosen tries to prove, like, improve this a little bit. He's, like, in a better mood or whatever in the series The Chosen. But, like, but biblically speaking, like, I bet he was a hoot. I bet he was, like, so much fun. There's a reason why a mob of people wanted to follow this guy. It wasn't because he was boring and serious all the time. There was something of life that you got from being in the presence of Jesus, right? And Hebrews tries to capture this. And th there's a psalm in Psalm 45 that talks about like how there's gladness in the presence of God. And then the, the author of Hebrews then assigns Psalm, 90, uh, Psalm 45 to Jesus, to the Messiah. And this is what he writes in Hebrews 1, 8 and 9. He says, you, speaking of Jesus, have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, speaking of God the Father, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So Hebrews is saying, Jesus, there's no one more happier than you. You were anointed with the oil of gladness. More than all of us combined and all the joy we can muster up, Jesus has more of it in him. Like this is the God that we serve. But yeah, I feel like we somehow miss this aspect of his very nature. And what I want to try to connect the dots to is that if this is the God that we serve, that he is bubbling over in joy, and that's just the nature of his presence, should we not experience that when we experience his presence? Like, shouldn't we pursue the presence of God expecting that there's going to be joy and life and peace and pleasure and satisfaction like we can't even comprehend found in his presence? 
That's what the Bible teaches. Let's read Psalm 1611 together. This is, and actually, can we read this together out loud? Can we, can we do it together? So this is Psalm 1611. It says this. Sing it with me. Or sing it. You can sing if you want. Hey. I used to lead worship. I used to sing it with me. Come on. All right. Let's say it together. Okay. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is good news. This is the God that came to earth as a baby, that he might not just bring salvation, but that he might usher in joy. Are you getting what I'm saying? But we miss this in our connection with God and in our ability to get in his presence, to understand even what presence is. Listen, I didn't, I didn't marry my wife to get a marriage license. I don't know if you knew this, <laughs> but like, I wasn't like, man, I want the state of Arizona to know that I'm a married individual for tax purposes. So let's like, <laughs> let's get married, right? No, I married her that I might have an ongoing covenant of intimacy, that our presence would be engaged with one another, that we might benefit from one another. You know, that's the exact image that is consistent throughout scripture of how we are with Jesus. That he is, the, he is the bridegroom, we're the bride. When we got saved, it wasn't just for fire protection to escape hell. But that's sometimes where we stop. No, he saved us that we might engage in an ongoing covenant relationship, that we might do life together, that there might be intimacy and fruit, and we might have an exchange with one another. How much are we as the church experiencing that? There is a challenge that we might engage in a deeper level of intimacy. So when I talk about the presence of the Lord, and I use that phrase presence, first of all, let's just unpack that a little bit. Because that can sound like Christianese, and, and I actually love to avoid Christianese because it's just confusing churchy language. And I feel like sometimes you need like a PhD in church to know what in the world someone just said. And so I'm trying to, like, let's just bring it down to normal people language, right? But the thing is, is the word presence actually is a biblical word. So it's not just church talk. It's a Bible word where it talks about like, the presence of God and seek the presence of God. And so there's this phrase, presence. So when it talks about that, it's, most, it's, it's mostly connected to, let me just explain it a little bit, but it's, it's connected to this idea that we are seeking not just the, the presence as in like ethereal, but the word in Hebrew actually is most translated to the face of God. So let me put it this way. If I um, am married with Shelly and we, you know, we, we do life together, but we don't actually engage in one another. Like, yeah, we're in the same proximity with one another. Like, we, we'll sit at the same dinner table and eat dinner. We'll go in the TV room, but we'll just turn on the TV. We won't, like, talk and look at each other. We're just going to look this way at the TV. Like, and we just do life that way. It's not a very fruitful marriage. Like, we, we just happen to be living parallel lives, but we're not actually in, interacting in such a way that produces a fruitful relationship. And so when the Bible starts talking about seeking the presence of God, it's saying choose to overlap and integrate your life with the very person of God. It's saying seek his face. So what that means is if I want to have a fruitful marriage with my wife, that means I need to put down the remote, which she's like, amen. Sorry, babe. Sorry. <laughs> Repenting in front of everyone. I love sports. Um, anyway, so put down, you know, look at her in the face. Give her like eye contact. Women, amen. You hear me? Come on, this is preaching. You know it is. And you're like, I love you. What's going on in your heart? Like, let's share life together. You give me something of, your, of what's going on in you. I'm going to give you something of what's going on in me. And there's this exchange that's happening that produces a fruitful, joyful, intimate relationship. How often do we not do that with God? 
We like want to get in proximity with him, but we don't want to seek his face. Like, I'll go to church and be in the environment of Christian stuff, but I myself won't take this personal and say, God, what do you have for me? And God, can I give you what I'm carrying today? I, I need to offload this stuff. There's invitation that is a fruit of revival that we don't just settle with having one or every now and then a good experience with Jesus, but we're learning to abide with God in such a way that there's this exchange. This whole abiding concept is out of John 15. It says this in John 15, 9 and 11. It says, as the Father has loved me, this is Jesus speaking, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remained in his love. I have told you this, listen to this, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. There's this face-to-face -face interaction that God's inviting us into of learning how to abide in his presence in such a way that joy is the fruit of it. This is why the baby came. This is why we celebrate the story of Jesus' coming to earth, not just at Christmas, but year-round. This is why the gospel is good news. Because he doesn't just bring fire protection from hell, but he brings a life of abundant joy. This is what he wants to do. And I love another translation of that passage from John 15, 11 says this, I have told you this to make you as completely happy as I am. Jesus is like, I want you to be as happy as I am. Like, that's my longing in my heart for you. I think that's so beautiful. That's what God wants to do with us. So if God is omnipresent, which is what the Bible teaches, which means he's everywhere all the time, that's true. And we also know that the Bible teaches in Matthew 28, it says, behold, I'm with you always, to, even to the ends of the earth. So there's this covenant-keeping promise that God won't leave us or forsake us. He's going to continue to work on our behalf for good and contend for us. But there's still this, this sense throughout Scripture that the Bible repeatedly calls us to seek the Lord. This is Psalm 105. It says, seek the Lord, seek his presence continually, because even if you're in proximity, you can still miss him. So there's this intentionality that we must take as believers to say, like, like I often joke about this, but you know there's a big difference between grumbling about something and actually praying about it. But yet we'll say, I prayed about it when really we just complained about it. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, this is so hard. Like, oh, yeah. Did you pray about it? Yeah, I just got done doing that. Like, didn't you just hear me? <laughs> right? And like, no, there's like an intentionality of saying, God, let me offload this burden. I want to seek your face because in your presence is fullness of joy and you have the answers for my problems. So God, I want to seek you. I want to behold you that you might give me some of that joy that you offer because I need it for my marriage and I need it for my job and I need it for my finances and I need it for my roommates and I need it for my career and I need it for this emotional state. I've, I've been tormented with depression and anxiety, God, and I need some joy right now because I'm in despair. We need this. And this isn't just a one-time thing. This is an ongoing contending of beholding the face of our Lord. And this is tied greatly to the, to the word hope. They're not necessarily interchangeable, but they're constantly related throughout Scripture where you see joy and hope. Because like a, a worldly definition of hope is wishful thinking. At least that's my definition for it. It's like, man, I hope that works out. <laughs> yeah, me too. I hope I win the lottery. You know, that ain't gonna happen. Right? There's like this like wishful thinking. It's like hope, but you're really not doing anything about it. You're just kind of like, man, that'd be nice. Wouldn't that be nice? Biblical hope, this is the definition I want you to, to get in your heart right here. It's joyful expectation for good. I'm going to say it again. Joyful expectation for good. That means you are actually in a posture of believing and 
Doing something to show your hope is in something. So it's a verb versus an adjective. So instead of descriptive, you're actually acting accordingly, saying, I have the, I, my expectations are set, the goods around the corner, with joy, because the nature of my God I'm putting my hope in is one who always comes through. And he's always full of joy. And he always has the peace that I need, and he's, he's my wise counselor. And he, the government sits on his shoulders. Like, I know the nature of my God and his power, so I have joyful expectation for good when I put my hope in him. Does this make sense? God's wanting to stir that up in you this morning. Where you've been feeling despair and hopeless, God's wanting to give you joyful expectation for good in that place. It might actually, just to give you a heads up, you start actually doing some of this biblical stuff, you might start to live very differently. And it might not always be well received. Like it might just look, start looking different. You know that the Bible says that Jesus, with the joy set before him, endured the cross. So knowing he was going to go die and suffer on a cross, he got joyful about it beforehand. What's wrong with Jesus? That seems a little unhealthy, don't you think? You know? But yet it says, because he could see through the suffering to the reward on the other side. So happiness, let me give you an Happiness is a feeling or an emotional state that is expressed as the result of fruit. You know, you get the raise and you're like, I'm so happy. I got the raise. Joy can precede the fruit and say, Lord, I know that you're my provider and that you have my needs in mind and you know what I need, so I put joy and trust in you and I'm at peace right now because you're gonna take care of me before the raise even comes. It, it is way more potent, way more power, powerful, and it's supernatural. You were tapping to something kingdom-oriented, not just human flesh experience-oriented. Now, it's okay to be happy about it. <laughs> I'm not saying happiness is bad. But I'm saying joy is a much more significant experience with the Lord. And so God wants us to realize that there's, there's times where we will be in a situation or circumstance that's very difficult. And God's like, seek my face. And in my presence, I'm going to give you joy. And your circumstance may or may not change. But you will. You're going to change. And then there's going to be this grace. The word for joy in Hebrew or in Greek is kara. And it literally means to be aware of God's grace. That's what joy is. You're like, man, this is so hard. And all of a sudden you experience God's joy and you're like, oh, this is hard, but I'm, I'm aware of God's grace in this difficult situation. And all of a sudden I'm okay. <sighs> Thank you. I can breathe. Like it, that's the literal definition of what, what joy is in the Greek. To be aware of his grace. To see that he creates space. He creates a vacuum, a space for you to thrive and to be free even when everything else is wanting to pressure down around you. And people are going, what is wrong with you? <laughs> Have you ever had that? This is how you were able to see Christians respond unusually well to horrible situations. Bad, painful life experiences, and you're going, I don't understand how they're doing so well. And it's because they've sought the face of God. And in his presence, they did an exchange, and they got joy, and that created an awareness of grace for them, even in the midst of a trial. If you're in a trial... Can I plead with you to seek God's face? Can I plead with you to, 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 to exchange with Jesus the joy that he wants to give you, that he ushered in the world so you could have it over the despair that you're feeling? I want to give some examples here. Um, will you do me a favor and, and turn to Isaiah 54 if you have your Bibles? So just to clarify, like, I want you to get this. Like, the joy of the Lord is not subject to circumstance. 
It's not, it's not subject to world conditions. The joy of the Lord lives because Christ lives and he lives in us. Do you understand this? Are you picking up what I'm saying? So my circumstance could be bad or good and I can be living in the place of joy. And the world could be saying one thing that's for me or one thing that's against me and I can still live in the place of joy. Because the hope of joy is found in the presence of God and the Bible tells us that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, that we not only get salvation, but the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within the believer, and now we get to host the very presence of God who is the fullness of joy in us. doesn't mean we always access it or take advantage of it, because when we don't see God's face, it's neglecting it. That's what that is. It's a neglect to the awareness of God in our lives. It's choosing not to listen to him, not to engage with him, even though he is with us. But when we engage with him, that's when we start to tap into a resource that is supernatural. All right. Isaiah 54. Let's start in verse 1. Let me, let me step back. Sorry, I won't give context. This passage is actually a very significant passage for us as Antioch Phoenix and Antioch movement. If you don't know, Antioch is part of a movement of churches that is a highly relationship. We have like relational, we have friends in all these churches. They're wonderful people. They're, they're, they're kin. If you went there, you'd be like, I just stepped into Antioch just in another place is what it feels like. And there's, a, um, there's you know, 45-ish U.S. churches. There's about 100 teams overseas. It's, it's incredible that we're part of. The backbone verse that God gave us long ago that said this is who we're called to be was Isaiah 54, 2 and 3. And I, let me just read that real fast. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out your, turn, uh, your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their, in their desolate cities. This is a promise of God that says that he's going to bring such a revival to us as individuals that we will live differently that will ultimately catalyze a move of God that starts to plant churches all over the place. That we're going to start to stretch our, tur- uh, our, our tent this way and strengthen the cord over here. Okay, we're going to plant a church. And we, we have this desire. We want to plant other churches in Arizona. We want to plant other churches in the United States. We want to plant churches all over the world. Because we, people need to know the good news of Jesus. They need to know that a Savior was born. And he offers, offers and, uh, and affords us salvation, but he also, also affords us joy. And the world needs to hear this message. And so this is a massive verse for us as a people that we continue to come back to saying, God, do it again. Okay, God, plan another thing. Stretch us out even here and like, continue to move us in such a way that, that transforms the world around us. So if you're new to us, you're stepping into that. That's what we're believing for as a people. But I want to unpack all around this verse because there's actually more going on here that, that the Lord wants to speak to us this morning. And I want, I want to catch it all. So we're going to start in verse 1. It says this, Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child, burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge your place of your tent. Stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your, hus- for your, maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. 
Now skip down to verse 13. All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. I want to unpack this because this is crazy. This is when someone is in a hard spot and they choose joy because they seek the face of God. It's using this metaphorical woman here who's barren. And he's saying, God is speaking to this barren woman who's not able to have a baby. And he's saying, sing. What? God, don't you see my circumstance? Don't you see my, my heartache? Don't you understand my situation? And then, he, and then he goes, no, burst into song. What, Lord? Shout for joy. There's this invitation from God that you might lead yourself into the fulfillment of what he has for your life. You have the ability to co-labor with Jesus in your own leadership of your own heart, even in places of great despair and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. We see David do this all the time in the Old Testament. We see this in Psalms. He's being hunted down by Saul, wanting to be pinned by his spear. Paul, Paul, Saul is trying to kill him. And he's hiding in a cave. And then he says, why, O oh downcast, O oh my soul? Why so troubled, weary heart? Yet, I will praise the Lord. Rejoice. I say again, rejoice. He's commanding his heart to agree with God over his circumstance. Guys, there's going to be lots of opportunity for us to be discouraged. Okay? There's going to be lots of opposition to following Jesus in this world. The darkness is only going to get darker, but listen, the light is only going to get brighter. You have to have perspective. The world is not cheering and celebrating the things of God like it used to, and it's only getting further from the things of God. But that does not mean despair for the church. The church beholds the face of Jesus. The church says, I'm going to look to the author and perfecter of my faith. And as I behold him, I become like him. And his joy becomes my joy. And I'm able, while even barren, to sing. Even when I don't understand, I will shout for joy. I will burst into song. I'm, I'm pleading with you, friends. I don't know where you're at in your journey, but do it. Whatever that thing is, that mountain that seems too big, that problem that seems too hard, that relationship that's too broken, the financial problem that you don't know how to get breakthrough through, name the, the, the woe, the, the woe is me problem in your life. Name it and then say, yet I will sing and shout and I will give God his glory. As you behold him and worship him, not only does he give you peace and joy, but then he gives you leadership through it. You need the leadership of God to go through it. We all do. And this is what he offers then he does something crazy. So not only does he say, okay, now like sing in, in the face of something that hasn't happened yet. But then he says, oh, by the way, like I want you to go and uh, stretch out your tent curtains. I want you to lengthen the cord, strengthen your stakes. I want you to make a bigger home. Because the context here is that the people of Israel lived in tents. And so he's basically saying, hey, your one room house, you barren woman who lives by yourself, who doesn't have a husband, I want you to go out and, and build another room on as a prophetic symbol that God's gonna give you children. What, God? My neighbors aren't going to understand that one. Right? But what is the thing that God's saying that you need to do prophetically in agreement with him? Not just sit back and like wait for him to do something, but you begin to move forward in faith that you're going to rejoice in agreement with what God has promised even before you see the promise fulfilled. Who in here has a promise that is delayed and your heart is grieving? But what is the thing that God's told you to do last and have you done it? Let's move forward in faith. I'm not saying it's easy, 
But Christians aren't called to do easy things. That's why the road is narrow. Like, we, we follow Jesus even when it doesn't make sense. Because I'm telling you right now, God's wisdom is so much higher than ours that it won't always make sense. We're trusting God's wisdom over man's wisdom. And that's a good thing to do. So then he says, add another room. So first you're going, like, celebrate about having children before you've had children, and you're, like, really upset about it, and you're going, okay, God. And then he goes, oh, by the way, add another room as a prophetic symbol that you're going to have more children. And then he goes into this thing saying, don't be afraid. Because he knows that when you start to do things that's in obedience with him that the world doesn't understand, you're going to get flack for it. People are going to say, what are you doing? You're just one of those crazy Christians, you know? You're just one of those zealot, crazy, wild people. You know, I love your zeal, but you might want to tame it down. You'll even hear that from other Christians. Hey, like, let's not get too excited about Jesus. Let's obey him to a point that makes sense. Here, you have permission to obey him even if it doesn't make sense. Okay? We, we encourage you, obey him, period. Travis just did an incredible message on obedience just the other day. Like, obey, obey, and then obey again. Okay? And there's this invitation for us to step into something great if we're willing to obey even when it doesn't Makes sense. And the beautiful thing is that God says this to you, do not be afraid, for you will not be put to shame. This is verse four. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. Why? For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And then I wanna skip down to verse 13 that I had you read earlier because I think this is tied to it and it's another thing that God brings us comfort. He says, all your children will be taught by the Lord and great will be their peace. In righteousness, you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near you. What I want you to understand is in the context as you studied how this is written, like grammatically, what it isn't saying, hey, you'll have nothing to fear because we'll move everything away from you that's hard and difficult. What it's saying is, I'm going to replace your fear with joy, and then you're going to be able to laugh at the things that used to be scary to you, even if they're right in front of your face. That thing that you're going, I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. I had this uh, picture. We, we were in the night school this year, and uh, we were doing a teaching on hearing God and how to hear the Lord, and, and what does that mean, and like, how do you know when it's God, and how do you test things? Like First Thessalonians chapter 5, don't quench the Holy Spirit but like pursue prophecy, but test all things that you know when God is speaking. And so we're going to all this discussion about how to hear the Lord. And all of a sudden, I get this picture in my mind's eye of like this scene, and I feel like I'm supposed to share it. And, and I want to share it with you right now, because this is exactly what we're talking about in this moment. I saw an, a, a picture in my mind of a father and a son, and they're in a truck, and they're driving down the road. And as they're driving down the road in this tiny little cab, all of a sudden, they realize there's a bee inside the cab. And this son is deathly allergic to the bee. And he is hyperventilating, he's freaking out, it's flying around, and he starts to cry out to dad, dad, help me, what do I do, I don't understand, dad, help me, and all of a sudden, the dad just reach up, snatches the bee, and he's just driving down the road, and he has a bee in his hand, and after a few minutes, all of a sudden, he goes like this, and he opens his hand, and the bee starts flying around again, and the son's going, what, dad, what are you doing, do you not understand my situation, don't you understand that the threat that I'm in, what are you doing, and he goes, son, you, look at my hand, and there, the stinger was stuck in his hand, he goes, I already took the sting from it. It has no authority anymore. And how often as Christians, where Jesus has already done the work on the cross, he's taken the sting for us. And yet we operate in this fear mentality when God's like, no, I want to give you joy. 
I want you to realize I've taken the sting of that thing. Now, I'm not saying that things can't be hurtful or hard, but you have to have a kingdom perspective of what's really going on in this life. And God's asking you to zoom out and see that he has done the heavy lifting. And there's a grace for you to be aware of that produces great joy even in the midst of a trial. He says, oh, you're barren? Shout for joy. Oh, you're barren? Build another room. Oh, you're barren? Do not be afraid of being put to shame for I've already taken the sting for you. Whatever that thing is that you're barren about, whatever that thing that you're believing for or needing breakthrough for, God is offering it to you this morning. The last thing I want to bring up is just if you'll turn one more passage of Scripture, 2 Samuel 6. I feel like they're connected, and I want us to, to catch this. The context of this part, part of Scripture is King David has been trying to get the Ark of the Covenant, which is the very presence of God, into the city of David, into Jerusalem. And the problem is, is on the journey, a dude touches the Ark of the Covenant and he dies because the glory of God is so intense on this covenant, on this box, which has the Ten Commandments and God's presence is on it, that it, it literally kills a guy. And so they end up dropping it off at a dude Obed-Edom's house. And Obed-Edom's like, great, because everything he did for three months, everything that Obed-Edom did prospered because the presence of God was like physically in his home. And he's like, this is great, Right. Well, David hears about this, gets jealous, and says, no, 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 we've got to bring this to the city. Like, I'm jealous to have God's presence in our city. So he arranges for it, and they're bringing it in, and this is where we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 6, as they're bringing the Ark of the Covenant in. It says, as the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, which is also David's wife, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in, in, in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went home and went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. So she's being sarcastic, she's being snarky, she's being rude to him and mocking him. Fellas, don't respond like this for the record. Um, this is not marriage advice, this is just a story. But David says to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people. So, like, don't do the whole, like, my family, your family thing. It's not good. But then he goes, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. Like, he will not let her criticism of obedience and the presence of God keep him from his yes to the Lord and his great celebration of joy that he's experiencing in it. But I want you to read this last verse. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. I'm speaking a little bit like in an imagery here, so give some grace to this, but I believe there's a prophetic thing that God's saying. He's like, the spirit of beholding the face of God and trusting in his goodness and the joy that you get it bears fruit. It bears a breakthrough. But a spirit that resists the presence of God and then is critical of it, it, it bears barrenness. 
And I don't know like, what kind of attitude you carry, but it matters. It matters that you lead your heart and your thoughts. It matters that you say, no, I'm gonna behold the face of God and I'm gonna seek him all the days of my life. And, I'm gonna, and when I meet with him, I'm gonna look at him face to face. I'm not just gonna be in proximity and I'm gonna actually take the things that I'm dealing with and I'm gonna put it before him. I'm not gonna talk about it in generalities. I'm gonna get specific with him. And as I behold him, there's this exchange that he offers. And with it is joy and peace and breakthrough. There's fruit and it can happen before the fruit comes. You can rejoice before it actually happens. You can prophetically move forward in faith before it happens. And this is what God wants to move us towards as a people who are experiencing revival. God is moving here. Let's not stop. Let's not quench the spirit of God. Let's not delay and, and, and continue to move forward with what he's saying. And what he's saying is continue to repent of sin, church. Continue to consecrate yourself and set yourself apart. But let some of this mourning cease and let some of laughter step in as you behold his face and experience his joy even before some of the breakthroughs that you're believing for are coming. Like today, let's agree with him. Today, let's obey him. Today, let's move forward in faith knowing that joy is found in his presence. This is the invitation of God for us today. So I want to invite you, we're going to stand. And as we stand, I, I, just, want to, I just want to hit one more thing that comes to my mind. And, and some of us, we really struggle with this message specifically because we have a high regard for authenticity which is a good thing. Authenticity is important. Like we don't wanna be fake, but you're sitting there saying, Adam, you're telling me I'm supposed to laugh in the midst of my pain? You're, supposed to, you're telling me I'm supposed to be joyful about a season of barrenness because I'm believing for a breakthrough that I won't be barren anymore in something? And I'm saying yes. And, and this is the thing, it's not a lacking authenticity. You can be authentic with God that it's hard. It's just a matter of choosing to lead your heart to the place of saying, I'm going to do it anyway because he's worthy of it. He gets the glory. I get the good for agreeing with him. And it blows my mind that this is even a struggle, but it is in our culture because what you're saying is I want to be authentically miserable and just remain in my misery. Man, that sounds like a lot of fun. But that's, that's what you're saying. You're saying, I don't feel like rejoicing, so I'm just not going to rejoice because I want to be authentic. And you're like, okay, well, then you're going to stay in that place and you're going to bear the fruit of that place which we just talked about is barrenness, right? So what I wanna challenge us to do as a church is as individual people to say, I wanna take before the Lord my authentic self and I'm gonna get in agreement with him over what I feel or what I think because we have gone too far worshiping what we feel and worshiping what we think. And I'm telling you what we feel and what we think are often liars because the kingdom of God is at work doing something special and God has a gift for you that he wants to break out and he has joy for you that he wants to impart to you, but you're not beholding his face and you're not getting in agreement with him. You're actually in opposition to him. And he's like, I can't give you the blessing that I long to give you that you actually want and you don't even know you want. So in this time, we're gonna respond to the Lord. I'm gonna invite, go ahead and ministry team, if you're in the room, come on forward. But what I wanna do is, this is the deal. Hearing a good message that's biblical is great and all, but it doesn't change you responding to a biblical truth is what changes you. So in this time, in this period, I wanna challenge every one of us, no matter where we're at in our journey, to say, God, how do I, A, seek your face? If you don't know Jesus, please come up and talk with one of us about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. That is the very first step of like, I wanna know what it means to know Jesus. I wanna know what it means to be saved of my sin and to experience the redemption and the love and the goodness of God. Come forward. But for the believers in the room, 
Let's not be okay living parallel lives next to God. Let's not be okay living in the same house, but not actually having intimacy with him. Like there has to be a place where we just say, God, I want to, I want to seek your face. I want to look at you face to face. Let you talk to me individually about my situation and for me to take my stuff and put it down at your feet, knowing that you have what I need. And as you behold him, let him give you joy. Let you give him peace. Let him give you life that he ushered in when he came into the world. He has the answers to our problems. And so I'm gonna pray, and if you need to come talk to someone or if you just wanna come and get on your face, do whatever is authentic to you, but respond. Don't leave not responding to the Lord. So Jesus, we love you and we honor you. God, we ask right now that you would move. That Even now, I, I, I kind of sense like, a feeling in my gut, like someone's feeling really nervous because they know God's stirring them and they want to respond, but they're feeling afraid. They're feeling nervous. Like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to go there, God. And it's, I want, I want to just tell you, you can trust God. You can trust him to be gentle. You can trust him to be compassionate towards you. Like you will not regret leaning in towards Jesus this morning. You'll never regret leaning in towards Jesus. And God, I'm asking right now that for people who have been dealing with anxiety and depression and joy feels like it's the furthest feeling, emotion, or reality of their lives, God, I'm asking right now for a breakthrough in Jesus' name. I'm asking, Father, for joy to overwhelm them, that you would deliver them of the things, the thoughts, the feelings, the chemical imbalances, the, the circumstances, whatever it is. God, we say breakthrough come right now in the name of Jesus and bring joy into people's lives. God, that marriage that feels so broken and every conversation is so heavy and hard and there's so much conflict, I'm asking for just an unusual joy. I pray that they would laugh harder today, God, than they've ever laughed to the point of crying because they're laughing so hard together in intimacy as husband and wife in Jesus' name. God, and that child that has, is the prodigal and it's been grieving mom and dad for so long, God, I'm asking that, that you would restore the family and, and bring the joy of the mom and dad coming back to the children right now in Jesus' name, that you restore mothers and fathers back to sons and daughters right now in Jesus' name. God, I'm asking, Father, for the church that's apathetic, that's just been doing Sunday church service, God, that we would cultivate and activate and pursue a beholding the face, a seeking the face of God lifestyle every day. God, I'm praying that tomorrow morning would, would ruin us for the ordinary because we wake up and we actually see God. And when we see you, you exchange with us our, our brokenness and our sin and our shame and our junk, and you give us life and you give us joy and you give us peace. God, may we learn how to, to access that, that we would learn to access the life of Jesus. Lord, we're asking that you would move, God. Would you come and would you, would you stir us and stir our affections for you, God? And I pray right now that we would be responders. I pray for every person in the room that right now they come forward, they get on their face, they would get prayer, whatever it is that they need, God, that they would do it saying, I want to behold Jesus because I want to experience the joy in his presence. Thank you, God. Move in power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.